Our scripture this morning will be taken from Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the, I will repay, says the Lord says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You may be seated. Would you pray with me one more time as we continue to roll? Jesus, today we believe that we gather in the good news of resurrection. We're not done celebrating Easter. We're not done celebrating the new creation feast. And we believe that you have gathered us together, that you have rescued us, that you have called us home. And yet, it's not always easy to live resurrection. It's not always easy to make our way at the party. It's not always easy to navigate life in your new world. And so today as we gather, would you help us know what it looks like to live in you? Would you guide us to living in the good news of resurrection, to participating in the new creation feast, and to living a life of true victory? Jesus, to help us to live free. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen.
Uh, well, I want to start with a story, as I am often want to do. In 1944, during World War II, uh, the Japanese military stationed a soldier named Hiru Anada in the island of Lubang, which is just southwest of Manila. And they gave him a very simple but very profound order, hamper enemy attacks and never surrender. Hiru Anada took this command and this order very, very seriously, and for a year he did his work diligently. But if you know your World War II history, in 1945, Japan surrenders. And so, hypothetically, Hiru's job of hampering enemy attacks and never surrendering would be over. But when Hiru heard word that Japan had surrendered, he did not believe it. He believed that that was a ploy by American propaganda to convince him to leave hiding. And so instead, Hiru doubled down. He was like, that's a trick. I'm not going to fall for it. You come and get me, America. So he kept fighting. And Japan tried to give news and uh, tell Hiru that the war was over, but every attempt failed to deliver the message. And they would even drop leaflets over Lubang Islands in order to communicate to Hiru Anada that the war was over. And every time he read the leaflets, he was like, oh, this is more American propaganda. They are trying to convince me that this war is over, and it's not going to work, America. I'm here to stay. Hiru stayed on that island, never surrendering and hampering enemy attacks, not for a year after the war, not for two years after the war, but for so many years that in 1955, Japan declared him dead and missing in action, but not found. No one knew where he was at the time, and Japan just stopped looking for him because they were like, we can't find him. The leaflets aren't working. He believes that every radio signal is just American propaganda, so he must be gone and dead. But in 1970, a Japanese student was like, you know what I want to do? I want to find that guerrilla warrior who would not surrender in the war. And so a Japanese student from the University of Japan traveled to Lubang Island, this island southwest of Manila, and found Hiru Anada still fighting, never surrendering, and still believing that he was hampering enemy attacks. And the Japanese student told Hiru that the war had been won, or that the war had been over, that Japan had surrendered. And Hiru said he would believe it only if his commanding officer, the person who sent him to Lubang Island, would return with him and relieve him of duty. So the next spring, the student and the commanding officer go and return to Lubang Island and relieve Hiru Anada of his duty. And this is a picture of them leaving Lubang Island. And I love everything about this photo. Like over here on the left is the student from the University of Japan. Look at his outfit. What is he doing? This is like disco or jungle, fly all the time. This is like the 1970s jungle where is amazing. I like this guy in the duck hat that's just taking a moment to commune with nature in the back here. Like, did no one tell him that a photo was about to be taken? Hey, like, you're about to make history. Look down. And then I, <laughs> I love this is Onada in the front. That's his original uniform. 29 years later, that's his original 
sword, and they found him with his original rifle and still 500 rounds. He was still dedicated to the cause. And then finally on the right is his once upon a time commanding CO, now in his 70s, going to Lubang Island to return him home. I love everything about this story, and I love everything about this photo. But the thing that I love the most about this story and about this photo is I think it so perfectly illustrates the world we find ourselves in post-resurrection. I think it so perfectly illustrates the world we find ourselves in after Easter. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 53 that in the cross and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the war has been won. He says that death and sin have been swallowed up in victory, that the sin and death that reigned in this world is done away with, that the world has fundamentally changed. Victory is here. The kingdom is on the horizon. Christ has been revealed. The war is over. And that is really good news in many ways, but I think it leaves us actually feeling a bit like Hiru Anada. For some of us, it leaves us feeling like we are soldiers who are still on an island fighting a war that has ended. And in our lives and in our world and in the circumstances in which we find ourselves, it does not feel like the war has ended. Everything around us is communicating to us that we are still in survival mode, that if we don't fight, something will be taken from us, that the world is still charged with violence and harm. And so we are soldiers still on an island fighting a war that is supposedly over. Or some of us, maybe we feel like we are in the process of being rescued. Maybe we have heard good news that resurrection is on the horizon, that Easter has been accomplished, but we are discerning whether it is actually good news or not. We have been tricked before. We have heard propaganda before. Maybe we grew up in some kind of religious environment before and we heard the good news declared. And so now we are discerning, is this news of resurrection good? Where's the ploy? Is it a trick? How do you know if this is really rescue or just another ruse? And then some of us are like Anada from that photo. Maybe we are leaving the island, but the truth is, Anada spent 29 years fighting a war that he believed was still raging. That's more time than he had been a civilian. He went to the island when he was 22. He spent training and years before that. So most of his life has been defined by fighting a conflict for survival. When he leaves that island, something much more difficult begins for him. The world has changed in 29 years. When Onada went to the island, he didn't need to know what a TV was. When he gets back, it's 1970s. Movies are being made. There's TVs in people's homes. The world has fundamentally advanced in ways that would feel startling. And more importantly, how would your body react to not being in a war zone anymore? For 29 years, you have spent your life being afraid of an enemy, being afraid of what might happen to you, being afraid of the conflict around you, and you're supposed to just be a civilian? You're supposed to just enter back into normal society, freed and rescued 
and alive. I think many of us are like that Onada. Easter means resurrection for us. It means good news. It means the hope of the world. And we believe that good news. We love that good news. We are celebrating that good news. But just because we have been rescued, just because we have experienced the good news of Easter, does not mean it is easy to live within the good news. It doesn't mean our bodies naturally rest in Jesus. It doesn't mean that trauma doesn't still inform decisions. It doesn't mean that old habits and patterns aren't still a part of our existence. It doesn't mean that we don't feel like we are still fighting for survival. Resurrection is good news. It changes everything. But rescued life doesn't always come that easy to us. The Apostle Paul actually really likes to talk about this, that it takes a bit for rescued life to make its way into our very being. In Galatians 5, verse 1, Paul is writing to a small church that has just experienced the resurrection. And as they've experienced this good news of the resurrection, it has set them on fire. They have become freed, but then something happens in their journey. Paul says, Christ has set us free for freedom. So we've been set free, And the purpose of that freedom is to live a free life. The war is over. Victory is established. Live in victory. Resurrection is here. Live in resurrection. But then he adds this, therefore, stand firm. And don't submit to the bondage of slavery again, which implies that we can submit the bondage of slavery again. And then in verse 7, he says specifically, you are running this free race well. You are living new creation life. You are running in love. And then something stopped you. What stopped you from running so well? Paul does the same thing in Romans 7, but he talks about himself, not another church. In Romans 7, you might be familiar with this dialogue. He's talking about his own life and why he can't figure out how to do what he wants to do. So in verse 15, he says this, I don't know what I'm doing. Really like that the Apostle Paul says this. Sometimes you can think of him as like a real heroic character. And now like at night, just by a candle, he's like, what am I doing? None of this makes sense. How do I live this way? What am I doing? Because I don't do what I want to do. I want something, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the things I hate. Then in verse 21, he says this, So I find that as a rule, when I want to do what is good, something evil is right there with me. And I gladly agree with the good on the inside, but I see a different law at work in my body. It wages a war against the law of my mind and takes me prisoner with the law of sin that is in my body. Paul is saying, I have been rescued. I know the truth. I want the truth. Like, I can discern what is good. I can discern what is beautiful. I can see what is life-giving. And yet, it is like, oh, something in me does not want to participate in that good thing. Something in me fights against that thing I know to be good. I think most of us know this feeling. We know that resurrection life is good. We know that new creation life is good. Good, but it is hard to live 
because it goes against something. Paul says it's something in his body. And then in Romans 12, 1, the text that Meg read for us this morning, Paul calls it the pattern of this world. And I really like the language of both those ideas, pattern and the use of body, because what it makes me think of is that there are rhythms and habits and muscle memory and neuropathways and systems of this world that make it very difficult to live the truth that we may know. Like there really is something that is at work in our bodies, or there really is something that is at work in the world around us. There are rhythms and habits and systems and practices that are ingrained in the way we are, and it feels normal and natural. And so to go against that, to go against those rhythms, those habits is to go against a pattern that is pre-established. It is to go against a muscle memory that we have well learned. It is to go against survival tactics that we have learned on an island fighting for our very life. And when we leave that place, it is hard to let go of those survival tactics. It's hard to let go of harmful behaviors that felt safe in one place and helped us survive, and now they are here. Sometimes when we talk about, in the church, ideas like sin, we often think about it as an action we do or an inaction we don't do. And that's true at one level. But as you're reading the story of Scripture and how the biblical writers will talk about sin, it is much deeper than something we do or do not do. Instead of it being something we do or do not do simply, it is instead of that a way of living that is rooted in patterns of fear and scarcity. It is living in a different world, one that is governed by fear and scarcity. It is the patterns, habits, and muscle memory that we have developed to survive in a world of fear and scarcity. It is the harmful behaviors that we have learned to avoid shame or to avoid rejection. It is the race that we've run at work to survive scarce environments. It is the way that we hoard love or resources or truth because we are afraid of what happens if we run out of those things. And it's the way that we deny our privilege in order to protect our own position. It is more deeply rooted than simply an action. It is a way of living, a pattern that we exist within, a muscle memory that we have absorbed, a set of habits and practices that are deep within us. Habits and practices that we have learned in order to navigate an old world order. The order of sin and death that the resurrection says is done away with, but we learned them and lived there for a very long time. We had to survive in that space. Some of us even thrived in that space. And so we may now know the good and we may know what is true, but it goes against something that is deeply located within us. And to live into resurrection, not only does it deny a set of skills and habits and practices that we have learned, it also goes against what is often reflected back to us in the world around us. So we may know what is good, but it can feel like struggling against our own habits and struggling against the stories of the world around us. This is a small example of that, but in 2018, I've told this story before 
in different ways. But in 2018, I got to go on sabbatical. Sabbatical uh, is like a period of rest for people who work in church, sometimes university settings. And so I was given three months of rest from Missio in 2018. And Tori and I, my wife, we really wanted her to be able to go. But at the time, Tori worked for a private equity firm. And uh, I don't know if you know anything about private equity. They don't tend to give out sabbaticals, just <laughs> left and right. That was not her experience, at least. Maybe you worked in a different private equity company. And so we were like, this is really important for you to go with us, like to do some of this sabbatical together, to figure out some chunk of time, like a bigger than a vacation period, like a more substantial chunk of time that you can come with me. And we were willing to quit in order to do it, though that would be hard um, because uh, hospitals don't take prayers as insurance, and she was our insurance provider. So, you know, we were a little bit nervous about it. We were willing to quit if she needed to. So she went to her company and she began to negotiate for some kind of extended period of time off. And at the end of the negotiations, they were actually really generous and really nice. They gave her some time that was paid off, and then we took eight weeks of unpaid leave. And then we were going to kind of like construct it together to do a sabbatical, and they were really willing to do it. The thing that made the negotiations hard, though, is that no one understood why she would want to do it. Every conversation that she would have with a boss or a supervisor or an HR person, every single one would be like, are you sure? Like, are you sure that's what you want to do? Because most people who are climbing the ladder here are investing more time. They're taking less vacations. They're working more hours. And so if you want to make more money, which there is a lot of money here to be made, so if you want to make more money, you should um, maybe not do that. Like, maybe you should stay here until 8, and maybe you should work on Saturdays, and maybe you should make this thing the center and value of your life. And it wasn't that they rejected her. It wasn't that they didn't want her to do it. They just didn't understand why she would want to. And so every new conversation was a new convincing that this could be a good thing. And it wasn't just the company that they didn't understand why she would leave. She would be like, I want to spend this time with my spouse. And they would also be like, but why? <laughs> Which for Tori and me is a good question. I don't know why you'd want to spend that much time with me. I talk way too much. But every per- this is not a joke. Every person she asked, they were like, why would you want to spend 10 weeks with your spouse? Like, we work long hours to not go home. Why would you want to do that? And they gave her the time, right? They gave her the time. They extended her the generosity. But what made the conversation difficult and what made this process difficult is that there is a pattern to life at work in that company. There is a set of rhythms and values. There is a culture. There is an ingrained set of habits that to disrupt those habits, to break that pattern, feels crazy. It feels like you're running against the grain of something to try to disrupt life in that culture, especially when everyone else around you, for good reasons, all these good people in that company are investing more time so they can make more money. And for good reasons, they want to pay for their families. They want to have, I mean, all good motivations, but to take a different approach felt crazy in that moment. It is difficult to disrupt the patterns, habits, cultures in which we live in. 
In fact, it is much easier to conform to those patterns because they are what define normal for so many of us. And to press against normal makes you feel crazy. It can reflect back to you that you are crazy, but you can also just like tell yourself that you're crazy to push back on what is normal. And it is crazy at some level. It is a bit crazy to declare resurrection in a world that feels like it's still dying. And it is crazy to announce the victory of Jesus to a world that still feels like it's at war. And it is crazy to love your enemies as you love yourself in a world that is still competitive. And it is crazy, as Paul says in Romans 12, to treat people with equality when we are so at war amongst ourselves. It is crazy to live the way of Jesus in the old order of sin and death. Last week, or in Easter, we talked about the story of the prodigal son. And the story ends as the prodigal, or the story ends for the prodigal son as he enters the party. But we don't know what happens once he's in the party. And it would feel crazy if you're the prodigal son who has hurt all those people around you to come back to your father's house, receive love, receive welcome, but then try to do life in that place. Can you imagine the shame that you would heap on your own self if you had spent your father's inheritance and now you have nothing to show for it? It would feel crazy. And all the stories that your father is telling you and all the stories maybe that the people around you are telling you is the good news that you were rescued, but it would still feel crazy to accept forgiveness and wholeness and welcome and love when we have lived so long in an island that denies us those things. It takes time to unlearn the habits and patterns and rhythms of the old order of sin and death. So what do we do? How do you disrupt the patterns that claim us? How do you disrupt the rhythms of this world that claim us? What do you do to experience the good news of resurrection, to live resurrection? The answer is very simple. Not easy, necessarily, but quite simple. And it's the same thing that we do to unlearn or learn anything. Same thing that we do to stretch our muscles after a surgery and begin to recover. The way to live resurrection is to practice resurrection. As Christians, living resurrection requires practicing resurrection. That phrase, practice resurrection, it comes from two authors that I really love, and we'll look at both in a second, but the first one is the pastor Eugene Peterson, and in his book, Practice Resurrection, he describes it this way. When we practice resurrection, we continuously enter into what is more than we are. The key phrase in this moment is continuously. When we practice resurrection, we keep company with Jesus alive and present who knows where we are going better than we do, which is always from glory unto glory. Key phrase in this moment is continuously, and it matches what Paul says in Romans 12. Paul says we present our bodies as living sacrifices and we are transformed. And both of those words, 
imply ongoing process, an ongoing presentation, an ongoing presenting, and an ongoing transformation, not perfection, but practice. And in that passage from Galatians 5, where Paul talks about for freedom, he has set us free, he goes on to say in verse 16, therefore, if you want to live free, walk by the Spirit. In each of these examples, the emphasis is on continuous movement. Not perfection, not attainment, but continually moving. I really find the language of practice to be quite helpful to me. Like in my own spiritual journey, it feels very helpful because the language of practice to me, and here's how I hope you hear it, to me the language of practice speaks to patient, imperfect, grace-filled work. It's that patient work of growing into something. It is that imperfect work of not always getting it right and that being actually a part of the process. We are perfecting, we are practicing something, not trying to perfect it. And so it will be imperfect at times. It is that grace filled where you give yourself and you give others the grace to continue to mature in Jesus. The expectation is not perfection, but trying. The third century church theologian um, from Africa named Augustine, he wrote a very famous book called The Confessions. And in it, you know you're going to get so much history today. I went from World War II now to third century Christian history. I'm going to charge you for this one. Uh, That's a joke. I'm not going to charge you. (laughs) He wrote a very famous book called The Confessions. And in it, it's like a personal memoir of his own spiritual journey. And Augustine has this experience like Paul where he is transformed by the good news of Jesus. He's transformed by the resurrection. He finds his rest. This is Augustine's language. He finds his rest in Christ. But then that doesn't always come very naturally. So Augustine, he's like, I don't just naturally rest in Jesus all the time. Like, yeah, I believe this thing is the best news that I've ever heard. And I believe it sets me free. And I believe that it liberates me. And yet everything in me wants to live the way I did before. And nothing feels easy about resting in Jesus. And so Augustine, the language that he used to talk about practice is the language of tending. He said our hearts and our souls need to be tended to. And I really love the language of tending because it evokes to me images of gardening. My wife and I spend a lot of time gardening. uh, And what I've learned, you, you probably already knew this, I didn't know anything about gardens, but what I have learned over the last three years is that gardens are very slow, patient work. You have to show up. You have to pull weeds. You have to water. You have to care for it. You have to tend it but you can't force it to do anything. That's actually kind of the strange mystery of gardening. You can't force it to do anything. And in fact, if you force a garden to do something, you will actually probably ruin it. And Eugene Peterson has this really beautiful quote about what Christian maturity is that I think applies to this. He says this, maturity cannot be hurried, programmed, or tinkered with. 
There are no steroids available for growing up in Christ more quickly. Impatient shortcuts land us in the dead ends of immaturity. And in the same way, a garden is that way. If you try to force a garden, fill it full of pesticides or hormones, you will actually strip it of its nutrients and stop it from doing the thing that you wanted it to do. So there's something that you can't control. There's something you can't force. But there is things you have to practice and tend to and curate and nurture in the work of a garden. We don't overnight break the patterns of the world. And I don't think that is the expectation for following Jesus. Instead, The invitation to us is to patiently tend our own hearts and our own souls to practice the way of Jesus that runs so counter the patterns and norms of this world and to cultivate and tend in our own life little pockets and places of resurrection. For we might and those around us might begin to experience the good news of new creation. And as we do, Scripture promises us that we do not do that work alone. We are called to practice and tend, just like we tend to a garden, but there is something that happens in a landscape that is outside of human control. And the same is true when we tend or practice our own hearts. There is something that is outside of our control because the story of the Bible tells us that we are filled and empowered by the Spirit of God. In Romans 12, the text from today, verse 14, Paul says this, if you're going to practice the way of Jesus, be on fire in the Spirit as you serve the Lord. And we already looked at Galatians 5, 16, where Paul says, walk by the Spirit. There's this emphasis on the work of the Spirit again, to go back to church history, there is a Christian historian and writer from the ancient world named Hildegard of Bingen. Uh, if you can remember that, I'll give you a prize. <laughs> and she would describe the work of the Spirit. I love this phrase. She would describe the work of the Spirit as the greening of all things. Just let that phrase soak in a bit. That the Spirit is doing the greening of all things. And I love this phrase because it speaks to what we always see the Spirit doing throughout Scripture. In Genesis 1, the Spirit hovers over the surface of the water before creation breaks into the dark. In Ezekiel, the Spirit runs through the valley of dry bones before those bones begin to walk. And at the crucifixion, the Spirit fills the tomb, which is why Paul says in Romans 8 verse 11, if the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also. Through his spirit that lives in you. Missio, our job is to practice, to nurture, to tend to resurrection, but it is the spirit's job to bring it to life. It is the spirit's job to do that work of bringing fruit into fruition. 
The Spirit joins with our bodies, our prayers, and our works. It confirms that we are beloved, as Paul would often say. It confirms our adoptedness. It leads us into the fruitfulness of a life with God. And it guides us out of the patterns of the world. We tend, we practice, we curate and cultivate, but it is the Spirit of life who brings life. What does that then look like? What will it look like to practice resurrection empowered by the Spirit? Well, I just want to read you this chunk of text from Romans 12, where Paul begins to describe what a life of practice actually looks like. I'm going to read from 9 through 17. The Apostle Paul says this, Love should be shown without pretending, without pretense or hypocrisy. Hate evil. Hold on to what is good. Love each other like members of your own family. Be the best at showing honor to each other. Don't hesitate to be enthusiastic. Be on fire in the Spirit as you serve the Lord. Be happy in your hope. Stand your ground when you're in trouble and devote yourself to prayer. Contribute to the needs of God's people. Welcome strangers into your home. Bless people who harass you. Bless and don't curse them. Be happy with those who are happy. Cry with those who are crying. Consider everyone as equal and don't think that you are better than anyone else. Instead, associate with people who have no status. Don't think that you're smart. Don't pay back anyone evil for their evil actions, but show respect. I love this chunk of text because it feels so counter the patterns of the world. So that's exactly what Paul is saying, is that it is hard to break those rhythms, but in the spirit and as we practice resurrection, we will practice things that do not conform to the patterns of this world. In this chunk of text, it reminds me of the very first person, the first author that I ever heard use the phrase, practice resurrection. And it's poet and agrarian, Wendell Berry. And if you don't know Wendell Berry, he's one of my favorite poets out there, worth looking up. But Wendell Berry wrote a poem called uh, A Manifesto from the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. (laughs) And in that poem, he talks about how strange it feels and looks to try to break the patterns of the world. How difficult it is to run against the normal. How difficult it is to disturb what feels common. It will make you feel crazy. But the invitation of resurrection is into something so much more beautiful. And so as we close, I just want to read you a section from Wendell Berry's poem that will lead us into our final moments together. This is what Wendell Berry says. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and die, and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they'll call you. When they want you to die for profit, they'll let you know. So, friends... Every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. 
love the world, work for nothing, take all that you have and be poor, love someone who does not deserve it, plant sequoias so that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Listen to the carrion, put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh, laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though have you considered all the facts. Lie easy in the shade, rest your head in her lap, swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark a false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like a fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Missio, it can feel strange to live resurrection in the patterns and rhythms of this world. But resurrection is an invitation into new creation and new life. And as we live it, it may feel like pushing against the world. It may make us feel crazy, as Wendell Berry said, like mad farmers on some kind of liberation front. But that is probably the right feeling to have. Because when we push against the patterns of this world to live the good news of Jesus, we are actually living with the grain of God's new creation work. Into the thing that he is doing. So, Missio, as we close, just one question before we come to the table. How this week, so it's going to be big, it doesn't have to be grand, but how this week can we practice resurrection? What might it look like in your own life and in your own family and in your own neighborhoods to press on those patterns that we have learned and that we have lived in in order to survive? What can you do to press on it and risk in new creation, resurrection, living? And one way that we do that every single week as a community is that we gather at this table. Jesus said, whenever you are with one another, do this table in remembrance of me because as you see it, you see the non-conforming, pattern-disrupting, breaking of my body that I'm going to love my enemies even as they kill me. I'm going to give you a space at my table even, like the, even as the, like the prodigal son we waste our inheritance. And I'm always going to make room. And so, Missy, as we gather at this table, we participate in the new creation feast. We get to taste and see in this small practice what God is doing. So that we too might leave this place and practice with Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're with us. That today we get to be recipients of your new creation resurrection work. God, would you renew our minds so that we don't conform to the patterns of this world? Would you disrupt what we normally see and what we consider natural so that we might see the inbreaking of your kingdom and the way of you and we might know it as good and true and beautiful? It's a liberating reality. God, as we practice the table and as we sing these songs, help us to taste and see the new creation feast of you.
In your name we pray. Amen.